Good morning. For those of you I haven't met, my name is John, and I'm pastor around these parts. And I'm going to say it that way because I'm wearing my flannel and my boots today. And uh, I may not be from the South, but I feel like it today. And by the way, there's a bunch of you here today. So <laughs> you're, you're packed in a little tight, but that's all right. The day is coming where we're going to get a little more elbow room. And that's coming down the road, and we're excited about that. All right, as great as this is. So we have spent the last, uh, well, 12 weeks in the book of Galatians and the first four chapters of Galatians. And so we have been thoroughly discussing where our, not only our salvation comes from, but where the process of sanctification God wants to do. And by the way, sanctification is a triple word score. I just want you to know that on the Scrabble board up here, okay? We've been spending the last 12 weeks in the book of Galatians. For those of you that may be joining us for the first time, the reason that Paul writes this letter is because he went into the region of Galatia and he introduced them to the gospel. And he said, Jesus Christ died for your sins as the perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. And he rose again on the third day. And even though you're Gentiles, they were Gentiles, not Jews, even though you're Gentiles, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can receive the grace of God and you can be saved, justified before God. And that's it. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow the feasts and the festivals and the Sabbath and the Old Testament law. You don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is put your faith and trust Jesus for salvation and you can be justified before God. So he goes in and he gives them that message. And that is such great news because Gentiles for generations and generations were on the outside of God's family. And they could become part of God's family, but in order to do that, they had to put themselves under the law. They would have to get circumcised. They would have to submit themselves, the word they would use, they would have to put on the yoke. Okay, they would have to submit themselves to the Old Testament law. So Gentiles could become a part of God's family, but you'd have to do that. Well, Paul's saying that's not the case anymore because Christ has given himself as the final sacrifice on the cross. We are no longer under the law, so you don't have to do that anymore. You put your faith in Jesus for salvation and you will be saved. So he gives them, that's great news. Tons and tons of them respond to that. They're, they're brought into the family of God. They receive the spirit, all of it. It's incredible. And then after Paul leaves, these group of Jews, we call them today the Judaizers, they came in and they said, no, no, no. Now, Paul, he didn't give you the whole story. Like, yes, you have to put your faith in Jesus, but also you have to do these other things. And then they would put, try to put people back under the law. You have to get circumcised. You have to observe the feast festivals. You got to eat this way, all the things. However, they were only making them do part of the law, not all of it. They weren't making them make sacrifices and do things like that. It was only part of it. And Paul finds out that these people have come in, these people that he loves, and he shared the, free, the freedom of the gospel with, and that they've been confused, and then they've been brought back under the law. And some of them have become circumcised, some of them have submitted to all of this, and it breaks his heart. So he writes the, the, the letter of Galatians, or the letter to the churches in Galatia, to set them straight. And for the last 12 weeks, we have been establishing in the first, what we call the first four chapters of Galatians, he has been establishing this concept firmly rooted. He talks about it in multiple different ways from multiple different perspectives with different examples, proving thoroughly through and through that this is the truth. These are the facts. And this is what our faith is supposed to be built on. Not on going back under a law, under a system of rules. What we've talked about over the last 12 weeks could appear from the outside, since we've been talking about theology and doctrine, could appear to be theoretical. Like, okay, I get that in my head. I get that in my head, but why would that actually matter? Why would that matter? What difference is that understanding going to make in my life today? As I walk with Jesus, how is this supposed to define and direct my relationship with him? Rather than the law, how does it work? That's where we're turning the corner to today as we start into Galatians chapter five. So if you have your Bibles, you go ahead and get there and get ahead of us. We're not gonna read quite yet. But the question that we're asking is, what's the payoff? What is, what is the change? Why does this actually matter? And I'll tell you that it matters greatly as you'll see today. What's the payoff? Because we've invested so much time in this concept and making sure we are solid, we understand, it is very clear. There's no question in our mind. And if there's still a question in your mind about that, then I would encourage you to go back, if you've missed weeks in this, this series, to go back and listen to them or just read Galatians for yourself and study and see that Paul is very clear on this. Salvation and the process of sanctification are by faith, not by works of the law. Amen. All right. 
So, but why does this matter? We want to know that there's a payoff and that it's worth the time and investment to understand this. Um, I can appreciate that. Not too long ago, I went on a camping trip. I think I mentioned that a few weeks ago. But for Jairus, that's our middle son, for Jairus's birthday, we took him camping to Brevard. And we rented a camper, a pull-behind camper, and we went and we did mountain biking and did sightseeing in downtown Brevard, saw all the white squirrels. Well, no, have you ever been to Brevard? Okay, everything's white squirrels. Um, I've never saw an actual white squirrel, but everything is themed with white squirrels. Apparently they have those. We never saw one. So we were doing all this stuff and we we're like, Brevard is just surrounded by beautiful waterfalls. That's kind of what it's known for. So we decided we were gonna set out and we were gonna go on this trip to, we were gonna go hike and find all these waterfalls. And we found this really great brochure that told us, you know, this is a, a beginner hike, this is an intermediate hike, this is an expert hike. And um, so I said, we're not gonna do any expert hikes. Um, because we are not expert hikers by any stretch of the imagination. I can't remember. The only thing we've really hiked is Dunn's Mountain. Have you ever done Dunn's Mountain? I would call that a beginner hike. Uh, it's about 100 yards, and it's paved. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of our hiking. So I, I mapped it out. I was like, we're going to go to this one, and then this one, and then this one. I mapped it all out. And we showed up to our first one and had to drive up this logging road for like three miles to get into just the parking spot. We get out of the truck, and there's a Subaru that has just parked next to us. No surprise there. And, and this family gets out of the car, and they are decked out in hiking gear. I mean, Patagonia everything, like Mer Merrill shoes or Morel or however you say Like, they got the whole th Guy pulls out his telescoping walking stick and, like, flicks it, and it just... You know, he's got his walking stick and he's got his floppy hat and the, the whole, like, they got sunscreen on. And it was a little awkward because we arrived at the parking area at exactly the same time. We got out of our cars at exactly the same time. And they get out and they're all kitted out in their stuff. And um, I am in sweatpants and running shoes and a hoodie. And, and Jess is in jeans and all white tennis shoes ready to go on this hike. And, the, and so we arrive at the same time, and the question is, who's going to go, you know, who's going to walk down the path first because now it's a little awkward, you know? You don't want to walk down at the same time. And so the guy was like, oh, that's okay. You guys go ahead. I still need to get my trail mix. I was like, is this a trail mix kind of path? I didn't really, this is intermediate, supposedly. And so we started off, and it was pretty simple. And then a mile into the hike, I realized their definition of intermediate and my definition of intermediate are not the same thing. <laughs> as we are going muddy patches and as we're going across fallen logs on the river and Jess is crying that she's going to turn back and she's just going back to the car. We're climbing up the sides of hills with roots and grabbing onto trees and we're sweating and we were not prepared for this hike. And as we're getting closer and now we're three miles into the woods on this hike, and we're thinking, it's got to be here soon. It's got to be here soon. All I could think was, this waterfall had better be the most amazing waterfall I have ever seen in my entire life. Uh, it was not. Okay, <laughs> It was may, maybe at a, at a half mile hike with a nice path, that waterfall would have been worth it. It was not worth it for the hike we had to do. And so the question that I'm asking even now as we're going through the book of Galatians, we've spent, I've spent so much time teaching on this and studying this, and you've been so much time talking about it, discussing it in your groups, processing it, asking questions, making sure that you understand this concept through and through and through. Now that we understand it, what is the payoff of this? What difference does it make? Now that we've gone to the end of this hike, what difference does it make in our life? Does it matter that much? Because some people think that theology doesn't matter, or doctrine doesn't matter, that it's not practical, and that it doesn't change the way we live. And I want you to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this, will fundam this understanding fundamentally changes the way that you look at God and the way that you look at yourself and the way that you follow and pursue Christ. It matters so deeply, and I hope that by the time we're with, done with our time today, you'll see, in great contrast, the difference between those things. All right, so let's jump in to the beginning of um, chapter 5 in Galatians. He says he's laid this whole argument out, and he says, stand fast. This is what they're not doing. He says, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. You hear the definitiveness in what he's saying there? Stand 
fast in this. It's not only what secures your salvation in the first place. It's also what produces in you what God wants to produce in you. So stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke. Yoke, there's the term, a yoke of bondage. Do not let yourself be entangled, ensnared, wrapped up again in the law. Hey, do, not let, do not let that happen. Or not, not that we don't engage with the law, and we'll talk about this. Not that it doesn't teach us, not that we can't do things that are in the law. But do not put yourself under its authority again because you are under the authority of Christ. You've been set free by Christ. And so you, I want everybody here to hear this and be very, very clear, that if you've never done this, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place, paying for your sin, and that he rose again on the third day, if you trust him for salvation, you can be saved today. And you don't have to do anything in addition to that. You don't have to change anything about your life in order to be saved. You don't have to prepare anything in your life before you are saved. All you need is the humility to come to the foot of the cross and to trust Jesus to save you, and he will save you today. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. It is only by faith in Jesus. The grace of God is received, all right? And you can do that today. And don't, even after you realize that and you make that decision, don't let anyone put a yoke of the law back onto you or a new law that they've created. That is something that we call legalism. Christ has made us free and we need to stand fast in the freedom that we have. And I keep using that word legalism um, and I've used it throughout uh, multiple weeks now. And I just wanna make sure we're clear on what the definition of that is. Legalism is, I'm not speaking about when, about negatively about recognizing sin. We have to recognize sin, okay? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His desire and will for our life hasn't changed. Sin is still sin. I'm not talking about recognizing sin and then holding ourselves accountable to those things or even holding our brothers and sisters in Christ accountable to those things. We need to do that. We will do that in the spirit. When I talk about legalism, what I'm saying is legalism is a religious environment where a person's ability to keep a set of rules, whether that's the Old Testament law or it's a new set of rules recreated, a person's ability to keep a set of rules determines whether they are at best worthy of God's love or at worst saved at all. So it's the problem is not with recognizing sin and holding each other accountable to sin, which we need to do. We're talking about when sin is used as a measuring stick to determine God's love for someone. When you say, you are sinning, so God loves you less, or he can't save you, or you aren't saved. Or, I have sinned, and so God loves me less, or I, and I am not saved. That is the problem. That's what legalism is. And frankly, I don't think I need to convince you of this. You don't have to look very far to find that. Right? All right, so he says, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. What God has planned is better than that, all right? Verse two, indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, and let me pause for those of you that aren't aware of this, becoming circumcised would have been the symbol that you were putting yourself under the law. It would have been the, the outward symbol that you were putting, submitting yourself to the law. So if you become circumcised, he says, Christ will profit you, catch that word, Christ will profit you nothing. Christ will profit you nothing if you put yourself back under the law. Verse three, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So again, the Judaizers are trying to put them under certain aspects of the law. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. If you're going to use the law as your method, which you can't do, but if you're going to use the law as your method to try and be right before God or to, to, to stay right before God, well, then you have to keep all of it. Remember, he's made this point very, very clearly all the way. And nobody can do that. And why would you? Right? If you, if you put yourself back under the law, what's also included in the law? A system of sacrifices. Right, to atone for sin. Why would you go into a system of sacrifices to atone for sin when Jesus is the final atoning sacrifice? That, that'd be ridiculous. So he's saying, don't do that. If you put yourself under the law, you are accountable to the entire law. Verse four, here's what happens. Verse four, 
You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You ever heard that phrase before, fallen from grace? Paul said it first, okay? <laughs> and I have a feeling when Paul wrote this, he was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> right? You have fallen from grace. Or really it means you've fallen out of grace. You've fallen out of grace. Now on the surface, we gotta be careful because when you don't read Galatians in context, if you just took these verses and popped them up out and, and didn't talk about all the things that we've talked about so far, you might think that what Paul is saying is that a person would lose their salvation, right? You've become estranged from Christ. He won't profit you anything and you've fallen from grace. So you might see like, oh, well, if they put themselves back under the law, then they've lost their salvation. Well, first of all, because of everything we've read so far in the study we've done in the first four chapters of, of Galatians and also the entire study we did that took us a year of Romans, we know without a shadow of a doubt that Paul doesn't believe that. And that Paul doesn't teach that. So it can't be what he's saying. And also, frankly, he's writing to these Galatians who he knows some of them have already submitted to circumcision and have already put themselves back under the law, yet he continues to call them brethren all the way through the, through the book. So these are brothers and sisters in Christ. He knows that. He's not questioning that. What he's talking about is not a positional reality with God. It's a relational reality with God. So what he's saying if you, I think an analogy, if you think of it this way, when a, a, a couple falls in love and they get married, they're, they're very much in love and they're married. And over time, that can fade, that can wane, that can change. And they can fall out of love, right? They can fall out of love, even to the point where the couple ends up getting separated from one another. And when that couple falls out of love and they're separated from one another, they are still married, but they are not enjoying any of the benefits of that relationship, and so what he's saying is, here's what's happened. If, if you put yourself back under the law, then you're estranged from Christ. You've fallen out of love with Christ. You've fallen out of grace. You're estranged from him. You're, live, you're separated from him. And you're not going to, he's not going to profit you anything. You're not going to enjoy any of the benefits of Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in your life. And, and that's what he's warning them about, that they need to not fall back under this legalism because it will estrange them from Jesus and that he won't do in them what he wants to do in them. What, what Jesus wants to do in us is he wants to change our character from the inside out. And the law can't do that. A system of rules can't do that. A system of rules can change our behavior, but it cannot change our hearts. And he's not looking for behavior change from us. He's looking for heart change from us. Ultimately, the heart change will lead to behavior change. But he's trying to do something deeper and better in us so we can't submit ourselves again to that yoke of slavery. He's saying your fellowship with Jesus is broken because you've gone to this other system that doesn't work and you already know it doesn't work. You need to fall in love with Jesus again. If we try to live legalistically, it doesn't change our character. Legalistic living doesn't soften our hearts. It does the opposite. It hardens our heart. And ultimately, it crushes people's spirits. Legalism is like, it is like a pillow over the face of faith in our life. It suffocates us. It crushes us. What, what legalism does, what, what, what looking at God, and we talked about, we used this language recently, Looking at God as a judge on a bench enforcing the law and waiting to punish us will crush our relationship with him. Instead of looking at him as Abba Father who loves us and sent his son for us. It'll crush us and it crushes people all the time. All the time. Because law-based living or law-based thinking brings with it fear. It brings with it judgment. It brings with it condemnation. It brings with it shame, all of which we are not supposed to carry because we are free people in Christ who've been forgiven for our sins. It, what it does, what legalism does, and we just, I gotta really like drive the nail into this, the coffin of this thing. What it does, legalism isolates us. It causes us to live in the dark. It isolates us not only from, from God, from Christ, estranges us from Christ, but it isolates us from other people too. Because if we're in a legalistic system, then we're all just constantly judging each other, aren't we? Based on the set of standards that, that, we've, that we've all, you know, created or decided on. And so everybody's getting measured. 
Everybody's getting measured based on their sin. And so it drives us in. So legalism locks free people in fear prisons. That's not how we're supposed to live. Legalism locks free people in fear prisons. And it twists, it just distorts and manipulates and changes the way that we look at ourselves and our relationship with God and who God is and how he loves us and what grace is. And we just can't see that clearly when we're living legalistically. Let me give you, I want to give you an example from, from my own history, my own life, okay? I grew up, um, my, uh, my dad was a pastor and he preached and he taught grace with everything that he had. It was his catchphrase. There were times when I was in high school, we would count, we would tally how many times my dad said grace during a message. He believes in it with all of his heart. But that wasn't always what we experienced being teenagers. Now, I was a teenager in the 90s, okay? And you don't have to do, don't waste time on the math. I'm 42 years old. There you go. All right. I was a teenager in the 90s. I was in high school in the 90s. And in the 90s, there was this thing that existed out there that we now call purity culture. Here's, here's what happened. Let me, let me tell you what, it, what happened with me. I'll just talk about myself, not about other people, but about myself. All right. Purity culture was born out of parents and the church's fear of what culture was teaching to their children. So it was born out of a really good place. Um, our parents were scared to death for teenagers in the 90s because of the over-sexualization of everything. The, what, the images that were on TV and what was being told in the culture and, and their fear was that their teenagers, their students were not going to make the decision to be, remain sexually pure until they were married, which is a good thing. That's what we're supposed to do, all right? Scripture tells us that anything outside of marriage is sexual immorality, and so we need to commit ourselves to purity, and that's what parents wanted for their kids, and that's awesome. That's what we still want today, <laughs> all right? So the, the, the intent was, was really good, and would, but was born a bit out of fear of things that were going on in the culture. So the, 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 the message itself was right and good and scriptural and biblical and God-honoring, there's no doubt. But the method that was used to communicate that to us was legalistic. And here's what it looked like. And then I want to talk about what it did. Here's what that message looked like. God wants you to be sexually pure until you're married. And so we're going to do all kinds of things to try and promote that and remind you of that. And so like I had a, I had a purity ring. It was a, a promise ring is what we called it. It was a, a ring I wore on my right ring finger until I got married that had, uh, it was gold, had my A in it for my last name, almost like a class ring. And so I wore that as a symbol that I was going to remain pure until um, I was married. I don't know how effective that ring actually was for me, but I wore it and I did make that commitment. And so... Um, but the message was, God wants you to be pure because if you mess this up, if you make a mistake here, if you give in to the temptation that you have, if you make a mistake, then you are tarnished before God and before other people. There was, and I know that's, I hope that sounds crazy to you. <laughs> it didn't seem crazy at the time. The, the, the analogy that was given that I remember my youth pastor, well-intentioned, don't hear me wrong. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. But the, the analogy that was given to us, I remember it. You'll, you'll know why I remember it in a second. And it's such a youth pastor thing to say. But the analogy was, they would say, sex is sticky. I know. It wasn't a great idea. It was the 90s. A lot of bad things happened in the 90s. People didn't make great decisions. But so, like, you're a piece of tape. This is the idea, okay? You're a piece of tape. And anytime you engage in that with someone, you are adhering yourself to them. That's the analogy. Jess was, Jess was in a different youth group. She heard this exact same analogy. This is something that went around. You adhere yourself to someone. And just like a piece of tape, you think about it, you stick it on your, your shirt or something. When you pull that tape off, it's lost a little bit of its stickiness. Right? So the idea was every time you adhere yourself to someone in that way, you lose a little bit of your stickiness and it makes it harder to stick the next time and harder to stick the next time and harder to stick the next time until eventually that tape won't stick to anything. Right? And then you're just going off and doing whatever and not feeling the connection you're supposed to feel and, and all, that, all that kind of thing. All right, It's a clever analogy. I get it. There's some truth to that. When you, it gets easier every time. I, I get that. There's, there's some truth there. But here's what we heard. Whether this is what was intended or not, here's what we heard. 
What we heard is that if you fail in this area, if you give in to a temptation, or if you even have temptations or desires that would be sinful, then you are broken. And God loves you less, and other people will love and accept you less. You know what's missing in that entire message? And this is something that I don't think that I ever heard when I heard all these messages. Grace. Where's grace in that message? Where's, where's restoration in that message? Where's repentance in that message? Where's forgiveness in that message? And it messed us up. It, it made us think things like, like sex is bad. It's not. Okay, like uh, think sex is bad. And if I make a mistake here, it'll be irreparable. I can't come back from it. I've, I've lost something with God and I've lost something with my future spouse and I've cheated on my future spouse. And that's what those are all things that we were told. And, and so that's what I heard. There was no redemption. There was no restoration. There was no grace. There was no mercy in that message. And it totally twisted us up. And I'm telling you that there were people in our generation that had temptations or desires or made mistakes. There are people that turned ultimately their back on the church because the church turned their back on them and shamed them because of the mistakes that they'd made because they came out with it. It took us and it drove us into the dark on this issue. And we wouldn't talk about it. We wouldn't talk about the desires that we had. We wouldn't talk about the temptations that we had. We wouldn't talk about the mistakes that we made. It all just got shoved into the closet, into the dark, and nobody helped us work through it in grace so that we could ultimately see that issue the way God wanted us to see it. It got all twisted up. And we have people, even today, people of my age and, and, and well, for different reasons, other ages, we have people of my age that have rejected the church because the church rejected them and ultimately rejected God because they thought that... <laughs> Sorry. I have one that I really love that this is the case. They rejected God because they thought God rejected them. And he didn't. This kind of stuff is hard to talk about. Legalism crushes people. There are people literally who struggled that, on that particular issue that have struggled with sin and temptation and feeling like they can't talk about it and they can't discuss it with anybody and they because it's not safe because they're going to get rejected, they're going to get judged, they're going to get condemned, they're going to get ostracized, they're going to get shamed, they're going to whatever. And so they just live with it in their heart, in the dark. Their people have taken their own lives because they they... They are not willing to face that shame. And some people, because they are willing, they can't do it anymore, and they finally do say something, they are met by exactly what they were expecting. And when they're met with that judgment and they're met with condemnation, they walk away. They walk away from God. When God, this is a child of God that he loves, that Jesus gave his life for, that he's forgiven, and they're going to spend their life estranged from Jesus, not becoming the person that he's designed them to be. Not because of anything God did. Because of what people did. Because Christians didn't understand how to stand in the freedom by which Christ set them free. And to not be entangled once again under a law, under bondage. This matters. Legalism drives people into the dark, drives them into isolation, drives them to condemnation and shame that they are not supposed to experience as believers. Have you ever noticed? Now, this is just anecdotal. This is my observation. Right? Have you ever noticed that the deepest, darkest, seediest sins, by our estimation, tend to come out of legalistic Christian environments or legalistic religious environments? Are we surprised when we see priests who have sexual desires and other things, but they are not allowed to talk about them or express them in any way, discuss them under a legalistic system, do things that we can't even fathom. You know why they do things we can't even fathom? Because they've been crushed by legalism and pushed to an extreme where they never had the opportunity to talk about what they were struggling with, talk about the, what the desires that they had, and to discuss them with other believers in, an era, in, a, in a realm of grace. 
Why do we see this coming out of cults and other places where legalism is the, the reigning idea, ideology? It's because legalism locks free people in fear prisons. And what God has planned for us is so much better. You need to know that you have people all around you in your life that you love with all of your heart who have been, are being, and will be crushed by legalism that are living in prisons in their own heart who are afraid to talk about the thing that they're struggling with or the thing that they've done or the shame that they carry. And they're trapped. And as a believer in Christ, their assumption is that you feel the same way about this that everyone else feels about it, that they've experienced. And until you show them something different, until you show them what grace is, or until you take the first step and confess something about yourself and you're open about that with you, they're gonna continue to be locked in that prison. And so you have, I'll call it an opportunity, but it's a responsibility to be a light of grace in the world because I'm gonna tell you that people here don't necessarily experience that. It's not what they've come to expect from believers. Um, I grew up in New York State, even though I told you I was feeling a little country with my, uh, my flannel and boots. I grew up in New York State, where my family all still lives. And uh, where I grew up, the town I grew up in, super Italian. Didn't realize how Italian it was until I moved away and then came back and I was like, whoa, everything is Italian. Everything has a vowel on the end. This is crazy. And, uh, Growing up, uh, it's not, certainly in, in uh, Western New York State, it's just not a place where there are a lot of churches. Um, and I didn't know a lot of Christians, born-again Christians. Um, but boy, were there a lot of Catholics. <laughs> a lot of Catholics. I went to school with a ton of Catholics. And, um, and they, were all, uh, they were all part of the, the school. They were part of the community. And we knew that they were Catholic. And some of them I knew were, were born again. I knew, I knew some of them were Christians. But they lived under a weight of a legal system. And that's just what I got used to seeing. And so that's why we talked about grace. Even though we experienced legalism in different ways, or I perceived that or whatever, we talked about grace a lot. My dad, like I said, preached and taught on grace a lot to try and speak against that culture that, that exists where it's like, well, in order to be right before God, you have to go through a priest with this thing. You have to make confession or you have to take communion or you have to do whatever. And that's the way that you're right before God. It's just not what the Bible teaches. And so he, he taught grace. And, he, and so when we moved here, I moved here to North Carolina and I, that's what I was used to, a very legalistic kind of thing on that front. And I moved here and I was like, man, there are churches everywhere. <laughs> like I, I, worked, I worked in a, in a nonprofit when I first moved here in our first board meeting. We prayed before the, before the board meeting. And being from New York, I was like, you can't do that. The ACLU is listening. Like, <laughs> they will come get you. I was like, you can't do that. But no, sure enough, turned out everybody did that. I couldn't believe it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, there's a Lutheran church over there and a Baptist church over there and an Assemblies of God over there and there's a, there's a Presbyterian church over here and a Methodist church over there and there's an AMZ Zion. And I'm just like, there are churches everywhere, you know? I'm like, this is crazy. There are Christians everywhere in this place. And so I thought maybe what I would experience here was different. <laughs> nope. It's just a different form of legalism. <laughs> it's just a different form of legalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not supposed to have we're not supposed to have a system of rules by which people are judged in their love how God loves them. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just the same thing all over again. So you are surrounded by people who are crushed by this all over the place and have been. You got people that they won't step foot in a church. They won't step foot in a church because of the way they were treated by people, not the way God looked at them, not the way God loved them, but what people did. And so this matters. It matters for you and it matters for your ministry and the people that you love and the people that you serve, that you show them something different, all right? So that's enough about legalism. Let's not talk about that anymore. Uh, away with the bad and on to the good. What does God want for us? What does he want for us? If it's not a system of rules, because that makes a lot of people very comfortable to have a system of rules. And so what is it if it's not that? How do you stand in this freedom instead of falling out of grace? How do you stand in the freedom? How do you do that? Let's keep reading. Verse five. For we, through the Spirit, there's a key. We, through the Spirit, something that 
God's people in the Old Testament who are under the law did not have the spirit within them the way we do. That's something we can't take for granted. All right. We, through the spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And this is worded just a little, the order is a little awkward in the, in the New King James. But what he's saying is we are waiting for the hope of our righteousness, which means that one day we will be fully righteous. All right. One day we will be fully righteous. And so what we are doing as believers in the spirit is looking forward to that day. And we are pursuing righteousness as much as we can as we look forward to that day. So the motivation for me is not to avoid God's punishment. The motivation for me is to pursue Christ's righteousness. I want to become like Christ. I want to look forward. So we're eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Doesn't do anything. But here's the key. But faith working through love or faith energized by love. That's the key. How are we going to do this if there isn't a system of rules and punishment, if that's not the way it's working? How do we do it? Faith working through love in the spirit as we look forward to our hope of righteousness. How's he going to do that? What is the fuel, the motivation, if it's not fear of judgment from rule breaking? There is one, we really only need one word if we want to boil it down. Love. I hope that doesn't sound too simple because it's not. It is simple, but it's not. Love. Love is what drives us now, not fear. Love is what motivates us. Love is what energizes our faith. One of the fears that people have is if there's no law, if we're not back under the law, if we don't have a system, if we don't have black and white, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, if we don't have these things that we have to do, then won't that just lead to moral anarchy? Well, you know what? In the absence of love, yeah. But we are called to love. Love is it. We are free in the gospel to choose to do whatever we want with our life. We are children of God, and he will reward us for our work. So there is a payoff for our work and effort and faithfulness. But we can do whatever we want in our life. We have that choice. And we can either choose to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, or we can choose not to. And that is how we are walking. On May 24th, 2003, I stood on an altar across from my wife, Jess, and I made promises to her and I made promises to God. And on that day, our status was changed. We were now married. We were now spiritually united. But even in that moment, even standing in front of that group of people and making that commitment, the day after, on May 25th, 2003, I could do whatever I wanted to do. So why didn't I? Why, why have we gone 20 years, 20 plus years now, married to one another? I could have done whatever. I could have gone and had an affair. I didn't, for the record. And won't, for the record. But I could have if I wanted to. I'd still be married to her, unless she decided otherwise. Right? Why, did, why have I done that? Why have I stayed faithful to her over 20 years? Because I love her. And that's enough. That's enough. It's not because I'm afraid of consequences. I'm not doing a little. It's not that. It's because I love her with all my heart and I cannot fathom doing that to her. Because she in turn loves me so much. Love is enough in our marriage. Why would love not be enough in our relationship with God? That he has loved me with a love that I can't possibly understand. A love so deep that he would send his own son. Jesus, the love from Jesus so deep that he would willingly go to the cross and give his life and die a criminal's death and be beaten and to be crucified and the blood poured out on my behalf. Love so deep that he would do that for me. Why is my love in return not enough to draw me into Christ's righteousness in my life? 
I don't need a set of rules. I may put rules. I may put expectations or other things in my life to keep me on track. That's good. But, but the, the thing that's compelling me, the thing that's driving me is not God's judgment. It's God's love and my love for him. And that's enough. That's enough. And so as a believer, if your love for God is not strong, if that's not what's driving you in your life and in your decisions, if, it's, if, if your love for God is not determining your calendar and your checkbook and your social events and your relationships, then you're slowly but surely becoming estranged from Christ. His love for you and your love for him needs to permeate all things. And when that happens, he will draw you to higher levels of righteousness than the law could ever take you. And so this is the question that we have to ask in our life. Right now, just in response to this scripture, faith working through love, how much do I love God? I hope you know how much he loves you already, and that's never going to change. But our love for him has a tendency to go up and down. And with it, our faithfulness and our righteousness and the process of sanctification and discipleship. How high, how deep is your level of love for God? Love is enough. And ultimately, love is what avails and profits and produces what God wants to do in our lives. So what does this practically change for me? Well, first for me, I know that God loves me and he will not condemn me. I know that God loves me and he will not condemn me. That's confidence. I know that God loves me and his will is always best for me. Always best. And so that leads me in discipleship. I want to understand what the scripture says. I want to understand what his will is for my life. And I want to follow that above my own will. It means I make it my goal in life to love him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. And to be as pure and holy and as much like Jesus as he can possibly take me to. So the question is, am I going to be a product of the law or am I going to be a product of love? Am I part of a religion or am I part of a relationship? What does it change for me relationally with other people? It means that God loves me and so... God loves you. And I have no moral high ground because I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. I have no moral high ground to judge you or condemn you for your sin. We come from the same place. And so I won't condemn. It means also that I cannot love you properly without loving God at the same time. So I also can't condone sin that's in your life and I don't want you to condone sin that's in my life. Because I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so if you're out of line with that, it's my responsibility as a believer to help you. To, to point out sin, to hold accountable to sin, not in a judgmental perspective, not from a judgmental place, but because I love God, and I won't go against what he said. And so I want to help you to pursue him as well. So I won't condemn, but I also won't condone. And it means that my goal for you is that you will love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how I love you as myself. And so I will graciously correct when needed, and you can graciously correct me when needed so that we can graciously come to each other and confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed, so that we can grow, so that we can take things that are in the dark that create shame, and we can pull them out into the light of grace where they belong where when we discuss these kinds of things with each other, we know that we're safe places because we come on the same ground, but that we are also all trying to move each other to righteousness and working together to do that. This is what it looks like, as opposed to the alternative, which we've all, I think, seen all too clearly. Ultimately, I just think even about myself as a pastor, that my responsibility to you is not to tell you what's right or wrong, so that you can behave correctly. It's not my job. My job is to help you love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself and to teach the scripture well so that we can all learn what that actually looks like and we can do that together. 
If I taught you all the rules, if I read them all out of the New Testament, Old Testament taught you all the rules, and you kept them perfectly, but I failed to lead you to that kind of love, then I have failed you. Because ultimately, our responsibility is to love. Jesus said, greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've said that many times. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our responsibility is to know God, to find hope, to live free, and to do good. And to do that in the grace and in the freedom, to stand in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. And so let's keep doing that together. Let's make sure that together, we can't speak for everyone, but in this room, with this group of people, we are going to be a light of God's grace to the world. We are not going to put ourselves nor anyone else under a yoke of bondage, but we are going to graciously help each other pursue Christ's righteousness in our life. And we have the opportunity together to show the world, in many cases, something they've never seen before. Grace in a relationship instead of rules and judgment. All right. Let's pray together and ask God to lead us and to empower us as we do this. Father, we come to you and thank you for your love, your deep, indescribable love displayed for us in, in perfect form in Christ on the cross. Giving his life as a ransom for many. Giving his life in our place. And so, Father, I thank you so much that you were willing to send him. Christ, we thank you that you were willing to give your life on the cross. Knowing that it was the only way that we could be set free. That it was impossible for us to keep any set of rules. Any set of rules that would make us holy enough to be in God's presence, to, to overcome and atone for our sins, couldn't happen. And so, Christ, you gave your life on the cross. Paying for our sin as the perfect spotless lamb, placed into a tomb and risen on the, three, on the third day, proving power over sin and proving power over death. And we know as we look at the resurrection that you can raise us to life just as Christ was raised to life. And Christ, we believe you return to the Father and you're waiting to come back here and establish your kingdom. And we look forward to the day when our hope, our confident hope will be complete. Even as we, we struggle and we, we fight and we pursue righteousness now, we don't do that in our own strength or direction. Holy Spirit, you lead us, you teach us. You guide us, you strengthen us, you encourage us, you remind us of God's love, you remind us of God's grace, so that even when we fail, even when we fall, we bring that to you so we can be healed. We bring that to you so our relationship can be repaired, our fellowship can be repaired. But we know that even in that, our sonship, our daughtership is firm. And so we thank you for that confident ground to stand on. We thank you for a group of people that you've given to us that will help, that love us enough, that even when we are sinning, even when we are failing, even when we are falling, even when we are facing temptation, they will hear us humbly, will not condemn us, will not judge us, but will help us move toward the image of Christ, will hold us accountable, will correct us in love. We need that. And so thank you for giving us such a faithful group of believers to do that with. I, I pray, God, that as we are growing, as we are transforming into the image of Jesus, and as we do that together, we, we, we face our family and our friends and our coworkers and our classmates and our teammates. We go out into the world and we have people that have all different understandings of who you are, different understandings of how someone is made right before you, different understandings of, of what the, the church believes and preaches what the church, how the church reacts to sin, how the church reacts to non-believers. They have all these ideas and it's hard to tell uh, what those are. There's, there's so many. But God, you know, every person that we interact with, you know, you know their heart. You know more than we could ever know. 
And what we want is we want to be a light and example of grace to them. We want to show them, reflect to them who you really are. What hope really is. What walking in freedom looks like. And how we can do what brings honor and glory to you. We, we want them to see that in us so they can see you accurately. So continue to teach us, but also help us through the power of the Spirit to understand how to teach and model for them what that looks like. Spirit, give us the words to say that we may not know to say or think to say that'll break down barriers, that'll break down fear, that'll unlock the keys to the cell that they are trapped in. So they can come out of the dark and into the light where you are. So that they can understand what grace is. And so that in that grace and in that freedom, Christ can do in them what he wants to do in them. And transform them into the person he created them to be. Give us the, love, the level of love we need, not only for you, but for them to be a part of that. God, I pray that in this room, if anybody has found themselves locked in a prison of fear and shame, that you'd kick those doors open right now and show them that they don't have to feel that way that they can come to the foot of the cross, they can confess their sins to you, and you are faithful and just and will forgive them their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And that not only can they bring it to you, and you will not love them any less, but you will work on transforming them. Not only can they do that with you, but they can do that with someone else too, who's a believer who walks in grace, who will look at them not with judgment and condemnation, but say, I too am a sinner saved by grace. And I want the best for you. So let's talk about what God's will is for you. I pray that you would release people from those prisons today. That they would give their heart fully to you and love to you. And that they would embrace the fellowship of believers walking together in grace, that we would stand firm in the freedom by which Christ has set us free. And so we thank you, God, today for all that you have done and all that you will do in our lives. Continue transforming us as we wait for the glorious day when Christ returns, as we look forward to the hope of righteousness. It's in your name we pray together. Amen.